So as we continue our study of Psalm 5 this morning, one of my hopes uh, for these two weeks of our studying this psalm is not only that we might learn via observation and instruction. I mentioned that last week. That we want to learn from just observing David as though we were kneeling alongside of him as it were and listening to him pray and watching him pray. We want to learn via observation. We want to gain instruction from hearing those words as we study them in the text. But one of the goals of studying this psalm over two weeks is that we might also apply what we learn. So now imagine, imagine you came in this morning and you were here very early and let's say I saw you and we were speaking together and we were here at the same time and let's say I asked you, how did you do with applying last week's message? Imagine that. Because that's one of the, that's one of the things you want to be thinking in your head as you leave today. You want to imagine not necessarily an encounter with me sometime next week, but you want to imagine next week asking yourself that question, how did I do with applying the Word of God as I heard it last week? Because the Word of God that we considered last week, Psalm chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, was an amazing amount of instruction. We had a prayer paradigm that's set before us. And one, if heeded, that I would imagine would be used by God not to change His eternal decrees and counsel, but in time as we know it, to change the course of history as God so often has used the prayers of His saints to that end. So by way of a a rather brief review, I want us to consider some of what we considered last week. So you could be looking through verses 1-7 through as I call your attention to them briefly. First, what we saw last week was the earnestness of David's praying. We saw that that was connoted through the opening petitions found in verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2. David said things like, give ear. He said, consider. He said, give heed. And David, as we see so often in the Psalms, and as we see in this Psalm, was emotionally invested in this prayer. And I think sometimes just taking notice of David's earnestness can protect us from prayer staleness. Because we could slip into dispassionate murmuring without realizing it. And sometimes when you read David's words as he's writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit, you might catch your own dispassionate murmuring and say, whoa, there's a disconnect between the way I'm praying and the way David prayed. So the first thing we noticed was David's earnestness in praying. The second thing that we saw was what I think a helpful reminder to be intentionally aware that God is on the receiving end of our prayers. You see that in the statement at the end of verse 2. For to you I will pray. Now I know it seems obvious and impossible to overlook. But I think many of you would say, as I would, that sometimes we pray as though we're leaving God a voicemail. Instead of speaking, knowing that He's right there listening to us. And so if you think to yourself, that little phrase at the end of verse 2, for to you I will pray, you're going to be reminded of the reality of your communion in the moment with God and that He is on the receiving end of your prayer. You're not leaving Him a voicemail that He's going to get to it sometime later because you're not connecting with Him at that moment. If you're a son or daughter of God, you are connecting with Him at that moment. He's on the other end of your prayer. The third thing we saw was David's pattern of praying to God in the morning. Twice in verse 3, David wrote of prayer in the morning. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord, or O Yahweh. In the morning I will direct it to you and look up. So David here, yet alone David in another place as well, like Psalm 55, I believe. Or Haman in Psalm 89. Or Jesus, as we see in Mark chapter 1. 
we see that pattern of prayer to God in the morning. What a glorious investment you and I make by way of relationship and by way of kingdom advancement when our days, by the grace of God, begin with prayer. Fourth, we saw likely implied via that word direct an element of preparation to David's prayer. Remember that word direct is a Hebrew word that can mean to arrange. It's used to speak of, for example, how the sacrifice would be arranged by a Levitical priest. And one of the takeaways we had last week is we would do well to go into prayer with a mindset of having an arrangement of what we want to bring before God. Perhaps that looks like coming and glorifying Him for who He is, confessing our sins, giving Him thanks, and offering prayers and supplications for the people that we know are in times of need. We would want to treat our morning prayer time in a way that the Levitical priesthood ought to have treated the morning sacrifice and the preparation thereof with reverence and solemnity. Fifth, we saw that David didn't just sow seeds of prayer without looking for the harvest. There was a sense of expectation connoted in David's praying. The end of verse 3, when he says, and I will look up. The language there connotes expectation. So David was sowing seeds of prayer, to use an illustration from Charles Spurgeon, but he was also looking for the harvest. I'm looking to see what you will do. We too often make the mistake of going into prayer and we lay petitions at the feet of the Lord and then we leave and we forget about the petitions that we left at the foot of the Lord. But we would do well to see, how is God going to answer this? He may not do exactly what I asked Him to do, but I know He heard me. And I know He's at work. And it may take some time. But I'm watching like a watchman to see what my God will do, because I know my God hears me. Sixth, we see that David prayed in light of who God is. We see that in verses 4-6. through six. The basis for David's expectation. So if you look back to verse 3 when David says, and I will look up. So he has a sense of expectation. What's the basis for him expecting? The basis is his understanding of God's character because when you look at verse 4, we see the word for begins verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with you. So David could have expectation in this particular context because He knew that God's holiness led to God being opposed to evil and that God stands in opposition to evil men. It's a good reminder for us to pray in light of who God is. We ought to pray with hopefulness because of God's faithfulness. We ought to pray with an awareness of God's love and compassion towards us. Sometimes you might not know how God's going to answer your prayer and you might be waiting for a while and you might question God's love and compassion towards you. But if you know who God is, you're not going to question it as much because you're like, I know He loves me. He sent His Son to die for me. And if God would hear the cries of obstinate Israel, if He would hear their groanings, how much more does He hear the voice of His blood-bought children when we are crying out to Him? But you get there because you know who God is. Or like David, you could pray in light of God's holiness. So you could pray for the overthrow of tyrants and for the overthrow of villains. You could pray along those lines because you know that God is in opposition to evil. God is in opposition to tyranny and treachery because God is holy and opposed to evil. That's the mindset that David had in verses 4 through 6. We'll see more of that in our text today. And seventh, we see that David knew his position. In contrast, if you just follow along these verses, in contrast in verse 6 to the bloodthirsty and the deceitful, the previously mentioned individuals, David knew that his position was not because of his 
superior resume, but because, verse 7, of the multitude of God's mercy. You have to love the beginning of verse 7. But as for me, so unlike the boastful who will not stand in God's sight, verse 5, Unlike the, those who speak falsehood that the Lord will destroy, verse 6. Unlike the bloodthirsty and deceitful man whom the Lord abhors, second half of verse 6. All of which would not dwell with the Lord, second half of verse 4. David could say, verse 7, But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. And as I said last week, and we'll say it again, the walkway upon which David entered into God's house was not the raggedy rug of supposed self-righteousness, but he came in upon the beautiful carpet of the multitude of God's mercy secured through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of God's Son. Thanks be to God. Last note by way of reminder, such grace and friendship did not beget Casual indifference, but holy reverence. Look at the second half of verse 7. In fear of you, I will worship. Could also be rendered in reverence of you, I will bow toward your holy temple. Now that's a hearty review. And it's filled with spiritual nutrition that I would argue would provide not only nutrition for our souls, but direction for our lives. It's not exclusive, I mean comprehensive of what was covered last week, so there was more, but I think that's a good lead-in to where we get to today. We saw some petitions that David prayed in verses 1 and 2, but now we're going to see some other specific petitions. And again, I think God, in part, is providing us with a prayer paradigm. If you're looking for direction in your life as it pertains to prayer, I would argue Psalm 5 is a great place to go. A great paradigm is provided for us. We saw some of it last week. We'll see more this week. We begin in Psalm 5, verse 8, where we read, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. That is a great prayer to pray. And David thought so. Because you see him pray this kind of prayer multiple times in the Psalms. David in Psalm 27, verse 11, for instance, says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. David, in Psalm 31, verse 3, the second half of it says, Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. In Psalm 139, verse 24, quoting from the NIV, David prays, See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. So you see in this psalm and you see in other psalms, David carried along by the Holy Spirit praying for God's leadership and guidance. But if you look here, there are some particular details that help us better understand what David was looking for in this particular text and in this context. David wanted God to lead him in his, that's God's, righteousness. And he wanted God to do this because of his, that's David's, enemies. So what did David mean when he asked God to lead him in God's righteousness? And then what did that request have to do with David's enemies? Well, first, I think it's good to start here. God, as we know, is the righteous God. God is perfectly righteous. God is light in whom there's no darkness at all. You could look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, towards the end of that verse. Righteous and upright is He. You could look at Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and... Righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. 
He is the righteous God of the universe in whom there is no darkness or shadow of turning. He's righteous in all of His ways. He's righteous in judgment. To use language from Genesis 18.25, He is the judge of all the earth who will do right. He is righteous in His ruling. To use language from the Psalter, and particularly Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. His revelation is righteous. In Psalm 19, verse 9, we find that the ordinances of Yahweh are sure, altogether righteous. So David is looking for his righteous God to lead him, that's David, in his, that's God's righteousness. You are the righteous God. Everything you do is right. You are right in all of your ways, and I need you to lead me in your righteousness. In other words, I need you to lead me in a right path. Now, doubtless, doubtless, David desired safety from his enemies. But you'll notice when you look at this text, he prays for something more important than safety. To walk in righteousness. He prays for something more important than safety. To walk in righteousness. This desire to walk in righteousness was propelled by the presence of David's enemies. He asks this, that God would lead him in his righteousness, so lead me in your way so that I walk rightly, so that I do what you would have me to do because of my enemies. Now the word for enemies here is an interesting one. It appears to come from a root word that means something like treacherous watcher. It's a word that's used five times in the Old Testament, and the language that's used here, the word doubtless means enemies, but there may be a sense in which the word also connotes a kind of watching. So David may be praying right along these lines. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because I have enemies and they're watching me. Why were they watching David? Well, they're likely watching David to either accuse him or to kill him. Probably both. Doubtless they were slandering him and they were probably hoping that David would fall in some way that would provide justification for their slander. And they were bloodthirsty. So doubtless they were hoping for David to make a wrong move at some point so that they, like animals seeking prey could destroy David. So David needed the Lord to help him. And doubtless he was in desperate need for God's direction in light of their hostility. So look how he prays at the second half of verse 8. Make your way straight before my face. I want to jump to how we could pray that. But before I do, let's understand what David is saying. He's saying essentially two things here. He appears to mean that he's wanting God's way. Right? Make your way. I want your path, your way, and I want it straight before my face. In other words, I want to be able to discern your way. Protect me from perplexity. I want your way, and I want to be able to clearly discern it. It's not difficult to see how a New Testament Christian can pray these prayers today. You and I have people around us who because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and for some others, perhaps because of our disdain of leftism and all of the ways in which it goes against scriptural doctrines, you have those that would look at us and they would consider us enemies. You may have people around you who are watching to see you fall 
so that your fall will provide a justification for their slander. See, I told you what Christians are like. They're like that. They're fake and they're hypocrites. That's who they are. And they're watching you to provide justification for their slander. And you need to pray along these lines by the grace of God. Lord, lead me in your righteousness because I have enemies. I have people that are watching me. I want to carry myself in such a way that I'm beyond reproach on the scene and off the scene. That whether people see me or whether they don't see me, there's a consistency in my life. So Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Make your way straight before my face. What are we often tempted to do? We're tempted to pray, whether we say it or not. We want God to make our own way straight before our face. Like, God, I have a way. And will you make my way straight before my face? And David instructs us here. David's like, no, make your way straight before my face. You might even find, if you pray this, you might find your flesh kind of bristling at praying that prayer. Because you, you might find yourself just meeting up with those fleshly inclinations during morning prayer time and saying, wow, I'm praying for God to make His way straight. And I kind of really would prefer my own way. Like, I don't really want my own way. I love the Lord. But I really kind of would like my way. And in that moment, you're praying and it's as though you're mortifying the flesh in that moment in morning prayer. It's as though you're taking thoughts captive in the midst of that morning prayer. And I want to give you a little bit of an imagery of what's happening when you pray along these lines as a New Testament Christian. When you pray for God to lead you in His righteousness, it reminds me of a hymn that I love. He leadeth me. I love the words of that song. And I love one of the lines in that song, particularly in light of this song, I would clasp thine hand in mine. I thought of that this week going into um, Psalm chapter 5 in these verses. And this week it was my birthday. And for my birthday, um, Zachary had drawn a picture for me. And in this picture, which I wanted to show you because I thought it would be a blessing for you to see, in this picture that he drew for me, he said, I love you. And you see what's happening in that picture. That's me right there. Uh, (laughs) I look pretty cool. Uh, Zachary looks cooler and cute. Um, But notice how he drew that picture. My hand holding his hand. And he didn't know I was going to preach on this. But when you ask for your Heavenly Father to lead you, imagine you like a child reaching out and taking the hand of your Heavenly Father. Yeah, you have to look through the lens of faith, but it's more real than you can imagine. When you pray, lead me, it's as though as a son or daughter of the living God, you're just stretching forth your hand. And you're saying, Father, take me by the hand. Would you lead me? in your righteousness. Make your way straight before my face. Now, I want us to look at verses 9 through 10. We're going to see David's description of who these people were, and then we're going to see his appeal in light of who they were. So in verses 9 and 10, we read, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. So notice the word for begins this verse. This shows most immediately the particular reason why David needed God's leading. Why he was stretching forth his hand, as it were, to clasp the hand of his God. For he had people like this. These were the kinds of people that were around him and were assailing him, and he needed God's guidance so as to deal with them rightly and to deal with them wisely. And when you hear how these people are described, perhaps you, 
will be able to relate, and perhaps you will have further motivation to pray Psalm chapter 5, verse 8. So here we see the bad anatomy of David's opponents. But note, and I'll tell you this now, you'll see the shoe fits more than just them. More about that shortly. David began by writing, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Beginning in verse 9. So if you were to look in their mouths, you would find literal things like tongues and teeth, but you wouldn't find faithfulness. You would find lies, but you wouldn't find truth. You would likely find some measure of kindness, at least outwardly. And I say that because you'll see a little bit later on, David speaks of these individuals as flattering with their tongues. So you might find some kindness, or we might better say pseudo-kindness, but in reality there was hate. But you wouldn't find faithfulness in their mouth. David continues and he writes, their inward part is destruction. Or you could say their inward part is wickedness. Kind of even look at it in a plural sense. So the idea being that there's not only a problem with the words that they speak, but it's a problem with their heart. Because if you look inside of them, their inward part is destruction, it's wickedness. And we know in light of what the Lord Jesus said in the New Testament, that it's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He goes on and he says, their throat is an open tomb. It's not a good description. You don't want that to be said of you. But you also want to kind of know what it means. What does it mean to have your throat be an open tomb? Well, Alec Mortier, he notes, i.e., they devour other people for their own satisfaction. Insatiable, ruthless, self-aggrandizement. So that's one aspect, possibly. It may also connote a kind of inward corrosion that begets outwardly corrosive words. You can imagine, especially in those days in the ancient Near East, that if you were walking by an open tomb, there would be a foul stench. Remember, imagine, remember the story of Lazarus, that historical account. By now, he stinks. Or in New King James, right? Or King James, he stinketh. Right? So if you had an open tomb, there's going to be a foul smell that comes out of there. Well, here David is saying their throat is like an open tomb. So from that inward corrosion comes this outwardly corroding foul stench as though it's coming forth from a decomposing body. And spiritually, we know that would be a fitting description of unregenerate man, who we all are, the outside of Christ, who we were. Um, Notice, that does not mean, even though all that is true, that does not mean they're not skilled in the art of misdirection. As David noted, they flatter with their tongue. Now, you wouldn't be wrong to say these are some pretty bad guys. But you would be wrong to think that David is only speaking about those guys. See, David in this moment, he's got some particular people in mind. But even as he's writing, he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. And interestingly enough, in the mind of God, this would have further application than just David's enemies. Because the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 quoted part of this verse to apply to all Jews and all Gentiles. That's all people. So you'll find part of this verse, part of Psalm chapter 5, verse 9, quoted in Romans chapter 3, verse 13. Why was the Apostle Paul quoting this verse there? At least part of it. He was doing it to the end to make this case to show that all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are all under sin. That's the case that he was making. So there is specific application in Psalm 5. But from God's vantage point... What's written in Psalm 5, in some way, shape, or form, has universal application. 
So if you were to pray along the lines of Psalm 5 verse 8 or Psalm 5 verse 10 in light of your enemies, and you're like, my enemies fit this description right here, you would do well to remember that you, prior to knowing Christ, you also fit this description right here. And there in the midst of your prayer, there's a God-wrought humility even as you pray. But let me just remind you that Paul did not stop there. It wasn't like the epistle to the Romans ended at that point. In that same chapter, he goes on to say in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody, every human being outside of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say this, that sinners could be justified freely by God's grace, verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Remember that word propitiation simply means wrath-appeasing offering. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. But then he goes on and says, God has freely set forth His Son to be the wrath-appeasing offering so that God might be, verse 26 of Romans 3, both just, because He's just, He punishes sin. All sin will be punished, either in the lake of fire or it will have been punished on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to show that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So even as Paul quotes from Psalm 5.9, don't forget that he went on beyond just quoting from Psalm 5.9 and he made a case for the gospel at the end of Romans 3. The bad news, as you hear so often, is that we are sinners. But the good news that you hear so often is that the Son of God has absorbed the wrath of God on behalf of all who would believe in Him for the forgiveness of sins. That brings us to David's appeal in light of God's enemies. I want to read again verse 10. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. So you look at that first line. David is appealing to God and to God's justice. Pronounce them guilty, O God. In Israel, the expectation was that if there was a dispute between two parties, those parties would bring the dispute to the court and the judges would basically render a decision. They would decide the case. They would acquit the innocent and they would condemn the guilty. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 1. And that's essentially what David is asking God to do here. He's asking God to take a look at his enemy's sins and to pronounce them guilty. So God, you're the judge of all the earth. I'm asking you to look. And if he did pronounce them guilty, it would look like this. Let them fall by their own counsels. Second half of verse 10. In other words, like Haman, who fell into the snare that he set for Mordecai in the book of Esther, may they fall by the counsel that they have taken against me and the righteous, is essentially what David is saying. As Tremper Longman III notes, he also asks that their sin their intrigues backfire and lead to their downfall rather than the downfall of those they plot against. David then asks, cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. The language of casting out likely refers to being banished. You think of the land in that historical context, banished from the land, perhaps banished from their Positions of prominence, whatever positions they might have previously occupied or currently at that point in time. But I want you to notice this, what's driving David's prayer. It's not personal vengeance. You look at the end of verse 10 and you see what's driving David's prayer. It appears to be zeal for God. For they have rebelled against you. So remember, David is the king. Going back to verse 2, he's appealing to the king who is above the king. That's God. 
So David is appealing to God and he's asking God to render judgment, provided this is written uh, during the time of David's kingship. But in those days, in the ancient world, people often feared of coming under the wrath of the king. The Proverbs say that the wrath of a king is like a roaring lion. To rebel against the king was to invite punishment, imprisonment. And so David is appealing to his king, and the rationale that he provides is looking for God's justice. He's looking for God's justice. Often in the Psalms we see this God-centeredness of David's heart. It wasn't a personal vendetta. He's appealing to God for God's justice, for God's glory. They've rebelled against you. Now, David wasn't looking to take matters into his own hands. And I think for us as Christians, when we look at this psalm, we could be oftentimes too quick to cast aside such prayers as though they were relics of the Old Testament without New Testament counterparts. And I want us to understand that Jesus, for instance, affirmed that God would avenge His own elect who cry out to Him day and night. Luke chapter 18, verse 7. There's a place for praying for your enemies and praying that they would come to the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. But you know you're not supposed to take personal vengeance, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You give place to wrath, using language from Romans 12. God is the God who will enact justice upon those who hurt and those who do villainous things to His people. This is very clear from the text of Scripture. God will do what's right, and it is right for God to avenge His beloved who cry out to Him when they are on the receiving end of villainy, brutality, and tyranny. It's a right thing, and I will make that case very clearly to you in this moment. So not only does Jesus say what He says in Luke 18.7, that God will hear His people and He will avenge His people who cry out to Him day and night in the context there, the context of crying out for justice. But also, you look at what the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul writes to them, beginning at verse 6, It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Within that immediate context in Paul's thinking that rest for the righteous comes when judgment for the wicked comes. Now he's looking at the moment when Jesus Christ is going to return in that context. But that's kind of a principle that we see in Scriptures. That God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt coincided with His judgment upon Egypt. And it's a righteous thing for God to repay evil. We're not supposed to do it. You love your enemy. You pray for those who persecute you. That, that's, that's what you do. But sometimes it's not wrong for you if you're doing this in the right heart for God's glory and for God's uh, justice to be demonstrated or maybe even for the good of opposition who are storing up wrath for the day of wrath and if they continue in their sin, they're just storing up more wrath for the day of wrath. You can say, Lord, let them fall by their own counsels. They're trying to hurt more people. They're trying to kill more people. You think of what's going on in Afghanistan right now and you would be right to pray along these lines. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. I pray for the salvation of every member of the Taliban or ISIS who are out there who are doing atrocious things. And I stand in the place of other fallen human men and women and I say I am no better than anyone in and of myself. And I pray that they would be led to salvation in Jesus Christ. But you have to understand as a New Testament Christian that it is okay for you to look for God to bring justice in God's time. 
This is not just a relic of Old Testament teaching. How do you know this? You know this because there are saints in heaven for what we see in Revelation 6, at least that's a depiction, who are under the altar and are crying out and saying, How long, O Lord? How long? To give you a little bit of the context there, we read of souls who had been slain for the Word of God and the testimony that they held. These are the spirits of just men made perfect, crying out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And you can imagine, whether it's those saints who are slayed, slain leading up to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether it's saints who have been slain, you see that it's a holy thing to look to God for justice. It's a holy thing. In fact, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 20, there's an appropriate place for joy at the demonstration of God's justice as well. When Babylon falls in the book of Revelation, the people of God are told, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So what are you rejoicing in in that moment if you are those that are hearing that charge? You're not taking any pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What are you rejoicing in? The demonstration of God's justice. That's a fine line that you walk as a Christian. You don't rejoice in anybody coming under the wrath of God, but you do rejoice in the demonstration of God's justice. Well, in verse 11, David turns his attention from the righteous, from the unrighteous to the righteous. There we read, But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. Now you'll notice there's a lot of joy here connoted in one verse. <laughs> David is essentially praying three times for the people of God to have joy. So first, who should rejoice? Look at the beginning of verse 11. All those who put trust in Yahweh. So when David mentions the righteous in the following verse, you have an idea of who the righteous are. They are those who have placed their trust in the living God. In New Covenant context, placing trust in the Son of God for the forgiveness of sins. Second, David is thinking of the people of God and he's requesting that they be joyful. I just want to park here for a moment. I think this is so important. I think one of the best things that you could do, my opinion, one of the best things that you could do as a New Testament Christian in these days, where because of the things that are happening in this world, many people are assailed by fear and worry and anxiety, one of the best things you could do is you could pray Psalm chapter 5, verse 11 for the people of God repeatedly. And you could pray for joy for the people of God. It's such an important part of the Christian life. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, said that he didn't count his life as dear to himself, only that he might finish his race with joy. See, it wasn't only about finishing the race for the Apostle Paul, he wanted to finish the race with joy. Joy is an important part of the Christian life. Multiple times, in Paul's epistle to the Philippians, he told the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. Paul prayed for the Roman Christians that they would be filled with joy and peace in believing. Romans 15 verse 13. Paul prayed for the Colossians that they might be strengthened with all might according to God's glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Colossians chapter 1 verse 11. So please don't underestimate the power of your spirit-led prayers for joy for the people of God in this time. And don't underestimate the power of God to bring forth joy in this time. 
The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, I am exceedingly joyful in our tribulation. The Macedonian Christians he spoke of in 2 Corinthians 8, he spoke of them having a great trial of affliction, and yet at the same time they had abounding joy. The Thessalonians, they received the Word of God in much affliction, but they also received the Word of God with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Those to whom the writer of Hebrews wrote, he noted how those believers joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that they had a better and enduring possession for themselves in heaven. The Holy Spirit can do that. Like, really? Yes, He did it. And He can do that. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their possessions, knowing that they had better things awaiting them in heaven. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. So among the most precious things that you could pray for other believers in this church and beyond is for joy. Is for joy. Notice also the cause for joy that David communicates. Because you defend them. So here's the motivation. Let the people of God rejoice essentially because you defend them. In the most ultimate sense, you are the protector of your people. In the most ultimate sense, you protect them, you hold them so that they'll cross the finish line in faith. They won't turn away from the gospel. They will be protected. You protect them. Doubtless, God has protected us more times than we know of. We're all here right now, right? So you've been protected more times than you're even aware of throughout the course of your life. You're like David when he didn't even know he was being protected from, from Saul. Saul's like, go out here and do this, uh, you know, go take on these Philistines. And he's like, I hope he's going to die in this moment. But yet God keeps protecting David. That's like your legacy. But God's ultimate protection of your life is making sure you cross the finish line in faith and are preserved safely into the heavenly kingdom. But there's still another reason for joy to be listed in the last verse. But before we get there, David has another petition for joy. Let those who love your name i.e., let those who love who God is. God's name in this context is essentially synonymous with who God is. It's the sum of His excellencies, if you will, and His perfections. Let those who love your name, love who you are, let them be joyful in you. Quickly, I call your attention to how the people of God are described in this verse. They're identified as trusting in God, verse 11. They're identified as defended by God, middle of verse 11. And they're identified as lovers of God's name, end of verse 11. That's who you are in Christ. Somebody who trusts in God, is defended by God, and loves who God is. That brings us to the other reason for rejoicing, our last verse of Psalm 5. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. This is David's closing note of assurance for himself in particular and for God's people in general. Four, right? Four begins the verse. So this is one of the main reasons for the people of God to rejoice. That's the connection to the previous verse. For you, that pronoun is in the emphatic position. For you, and that's the Lord, that's Yahweh, you will bless the righteous. Who are the righteous? To use language from Alec Motir. The righteous is the one who is right with God. They're the ones who trust God, verse 11. Now one might ask, is this just a one-time blessing? Is this just a temporal blessing? Well, doubtless David had expectation of God blessing him in the here and now, if you will. But the blessing of God goes well beyond the here and now. I think Spurgeon is right when he wrote, This is a promise of infinite length. 
of unbounded breath and of unutterable preciousness. If nothing else, that's the ultimate application of what's said here in this verse. So the righteous can rejoice because the righteous will forever be on the receiving end of the favor of God. Let me just illustrate this for you to show you how this can help you in your life right now. If I had access to some superior technology that could tell you the weather without fail, like I could guarantee you 100% accuracy. If I, had accu- if I had this kind of technology, I can guarantee you what the weather is going to be like and you were going on a vacation and the particular place to which you were going had this beautiful scenery, but you can only enjoy it to its maximum degree if you had summertime blue skies and if you had warm sunshine and nice weather. And let's say I told you, and you were going there for a month, you were taking a long vacation, you're going there for 30 days, and I told you, according to this technology that I have, I could see that on the first day of your trip, you're going to have a mix of beautiful weather and some bad weather. But then for the rest of your trip, it's going to be nothing but blue skies and sunshine. It's going to be beautiful. How strange would it be if you went into a kind of state of depression in light of the first day? Like, really? That first day is going to be like that? No, I'm telling you, the rest of the trip is going to be beautiful. Yeah, I know, but the first day is going to be kind of nice and not so nice. See, that's loony to us. But that's kind of what we do because we don't have a grasp of what God has in store for us for infinite length in heaven, in the new earth. If you want to get a perspective of what it's going to be like for the people of God, right now you have life in Christ in the here and now. And it is a blessed mixture of joy. And it's a blessed mixture of enjoying the blessings of God and even suffering and holding on to your faith in the midst of tribulation. But that's like one day, so to speak, and you have infinite length of time coming your way. God will forever bless the righteous. And if we just get a grasp of that a little bit more and a little bit more each day, no matter how dark the days get, we know that we've got sunshine coming as it were because we're going to be in the presence of God and God is going to light up eternity forever. There'll be no need for sun or moon. The throne of God and the Lamb will be there and the Lamb will be the light. That's what's coming. That's not fairy tale make-believe. I'm saying that based upon the Word of God, the Son of God who fulfilled the Scriptures concerning the Messiah and His suffering, the Son of God who rose from the dead, the Son of God who right now cannot be found in bodily form on earth because He ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. This is truth. The Lord will bless the righteous right now and forever. And notice what He also does with favor you will surround him as with a shield. God's favor, consider God's favor, his loving disposition towards his people. How does God defend his people? Well, according to this verse, it's God's favor that defends his people. Interestingly, this, is, this I think is really neat, especially having gone through 1 Samuel. The first time the word for surrounding is used in the Old Testament, this is the second time right here. The first time is in 1 Samuel chapter 23. In 1 Samuel 23, Saul is closing in on David. David is in the wilderness of Ma'an. And he goes to a a mountain place. And at this point, Saul is... Same word. Saul is surrounding David. But God's favor surrounded David all the more closely at that moment. Because as Saul was closing in and surrounding David and about to get him, all of a sudden there's there's a messenger that comes to Saul and says basically, the Philistines have attacked. And so Saul's like, all right, call off the attack. And they retreat. And it's a beautiful picture of God's favor surrounding David. How is David defended? By the favor of God. God's loving 
disposition towards David. To use language from um, Proverbs 22, connecting it with God, God's loving favor is better than silver and gold. So quick quiz, what does God protect His people with? His favor. How long does His favor last? Well, Psalm 30 verse 5 says that His favor is for life. And if you have eternal life, well, His favor is forever. (laughs) Closing three thoughts in less than 60 seconds, I think. (laughs) Number one, history is headed for the full manifestation of this psalm. When the wicked are punished and God's people forever rejoice. Two, how do you deal with deceitful and dangerous enemies? This psalm provides some instruction via prayer. Yet alone other things that you would do in prudence, but this psalm provides instruction and direction for prayer. You could look at verse 8 and verse 10. And finally, how do you pray for other Christians, many of whom are considered to be enemies, to use the language from the text, by treacherous watchers who may be watching them? You can pray for the conversion and or overthrow of their enemies, You can pray for joy for the Christian in the midst of their pilgrim and sometimes painful journey. And you could pray for an ever-growing awareness of the favor of God that lasts for a lifetime. An eternal lifetime. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord. Thank You for this amazing truth that we have considered over these two weeks in Psalm 5. Thank you for the instruction and the paradigm that you've set before us in prayer. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that out of great love, Lord, that you might draw us to our prayer closets in greater measure this week. I pray, Father, that you will find so many of the saints in this place lifting up prayers for the joy of other Christians in their battles against anxiety and or despondency, Lord. May we be lifting each other up, praying for joy. Father, we continue to pray for our enemies, that our enemies would become gospel friends, Lord. That they would not not esteem Christians as enemies, but they would bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we do pray that You would stretch forth Your hand and that where there is villainy and brutality and tyranny, Lord, that You might have their counsels turned back. And Father, that You might pronounce them guilty as it were, and that You might spare them from storing up more wrath for the day of wrath. We pray, Heavenly Father, for us, Lord, as Your people, that You would lead us in Your righteousness. That You would help us, Lord, to discern Your way. Make Your way straight before our faces. And Father, I pray that in the midst of it all, that You would help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Thank You, Lord, that You take us by the hand as a Father. And we can clasp Your hand and we can know that You're going to lead us. I thank You for the Savior, the Good Shepherd, who continues to shepherd the sheep, that one who laid His life down for the sheep. And we thank You for the person of the Holy Spirit who is inside of us, leading us and guiding us in truth. Thank You that we are a people who are forever held and we will continue to be led Thank you, Father. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.